The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is a show that champions entrepreneurs, startups, early stage. In fact, all small businesses, and we're heard around the world at the same time every week. We've been doing the show since 2011, having a great deal of fun, and in the meanwhile, made ourselves the number one business radio show in the world for entrepreneurs. Now, we begin each week with a little segment called Bob's Thoughts for the Day, sayings that are simple, goofs, Anything that will get us just to think a little bit and start us off lightly. Today I've got some more quotes from legends of commerce that demonstrate conclusively that even the gurus of business are not always right. In fact, they can often be very, very wrong. And the reason I do this is because I just want to highlight that we we all make mistakes, every one of us. And business leaders make a lot of mistakes too, and they probably make more because they make more decisions. But um, the secret of being a good CEO or a good management executive is to learn from your mistakes and also to learn from the mistakes of others. So while we're talking about mistakes, how about some of these classics? The rate of change in the release of new products and technologies, as you know, is extraordinary. There's not a day goes by that there isn't some amazing new gadget. So how about this for a prediction? Charles Duell, the Commissioner for US Office of Patents, said in 1899, everything that can be invented has been invented. Wow. (laughs) Now, there's an understatement. Oh, how about the Decker Recording Company? Do you think they could have regretted saying this? We don't like their sound, and guitar music is on the way out. That's what they said when they rejected the Beatles in 1962. (laughs) Wow, I'd hate to be the um, executive making that decision. I think they sold something like a billion records after that. In the same vein... How about Harry Warner, one of the brothers who formed Warner Brothers, who said, who the hell wants to hear actors talk? That's at the um, end of the silent era. Who the hell wants to hear actors talk? God, I guess the answer is everyone. Even highly esteemed publications can be very, very wrong in their predictions. 
1968, Business Week said, with over 50 foreign cars already in sale in, on sale in America, the Japanese auto industry will not carve out any slice of the US market. Hmm. Japanese cars now have 50% of the US market. Last week I fe- featured Bill Gates and I'm going to do it again this week. Just goes to show you can make two mistakes. In 1981, Bill Gates said 640k ought to be enough for absolutely everybody. What the hell can you do with 640k today? Nothing. And our last famous screw up today is attributed to a guy named Albert Einstein, who, as you probably might know, was pretty bright. But Einstein said, there is not the slightest indication that nuclear energy will ever be attainable. Hmm. I think there's millions of people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki who uh, wish that that were true. Now, Facebook made a few announcements during the week. I guess the most amazing one was that they've now passed 1.11 billion monthly active users. 1.11 billion with the daily active users passing 655 million every day. And the number of monthly active mobile, mobile users also hit a record 751 million. Compare that with only 665 million accessing from a computer. So there's 100 million more people every month accessing Facebook from phones than from computers. And that probably explains why um, mobile advertising revenue is also growing at an unprecedented rate at Facebook. Now, these all represent massive increases over the corresponding time last year. And I must admit, you know, I was one of those people who thought that Facebook would plateau out, but they're not. They're actually going from strength to strength. The most interesting of all these numbers, of course, is the figures for mobile. The future is all about tablets and mobiles, and Facebook need to continue this sort of growth to stay relevant in this space. That's pretty incredible, isn't it, that you <laughs> you get to that sort of a level and you've still got to keep growing and finding ways to monetize this so that you can stay in business. It's worth noting that um, in 2011, 40% of Facebook's total user base across the service was from mobiles. This grew 50% in 2012, and we'll hit 70% this year in a month or two. Facebook's also introduced a new way for developers and marketers to target users with specific advertisements based on the existing app purchases and the micro transactions. This is based on a feature called custom audiences. This means a retail app such as Etsy, could use their feature to reach out to Facebook users based on their interests and their order history. Now, a video game developer could incentivize players with additional in-app items or microtransactions from the Facebook timeline. Now, Facebook users 
you know, don't really like advertising, but Facebook is a free service. And in order to continue to expand and improve their technology, they've got to find an advertising model that is both lucrative to brands and yet doesn't really piss off users. So custom audiences allows marketers to find new customers among Facebook users by using their email addresses, their phone numbers, Facebook user IDs or app user IDs to make the match. This sounds like a very, very handy new tool. So that's called custom audiences. Now, I received a number of emails during the week from students at the George Washington University Business School who were thanking me for my story last week about their victory in the regional final of the American Advertising Federation competition. This is an annual competition with colleges from right across the country competing for a place in the national final at Ad America in Arizona in June. So thank you for your emails, team. I really appreciate it. Of course, my son, as you probably know if you listen to this program, goes to George Washington University and was one of the presenters in that winning team in that competition. I also received a lovely email from from Professor Linda Maddox, who won the Distinguished Advertiser Educator Award from the American Advertising Federation. And of course, I wish you all the best for the final. I'll again be in the audience in Arizona, and I'm really looking forward to it. Now, I've said over and over and over again on this program that irrespective of what business you're in, customer service is going to be your key to the future. Now, 50 years ago, the local shopkeeper knew you, knew your family, called you by name, knew what you liked, knew if your kid was in a football team that was winning. They took an interest in your well-being. They cared about you. However, as time went by, maintaining this level of knowledge and efficiency started to cause costs to really skyrocket. As you got more customers, it became more difficult to keep track of them. And as we got multiple stores and then huge stores, it became very expensive, much more impersonal. This led to the dreaded call centre. Cold, distant, and totally impersonal. And more often than not, almost impossible to understand the person you're talking to. Now, when this became expensive, the focus became, how do we cut the costs on call centres? And then whatever customer service there was in call centres went straight out the window. So since the advent of social media, however, customer service has been totally transformed because customers, they don't write anymore, they don't phone anymore, very seldom go onto the computer and use the contact form and very seldom do they even email They use tweets and blogs, which are visible to billions of people around the world, as are the company's responses. So every response that you make gives you a chance to improve your customer relationship, not only with the customer you're talking to, but with potential customers globally. So 
social media gives you an opportunity to show that you really care about your customers. This builds your brand equity, which means when they want to buy more products, they'll come to you first. So social media has made customer service the new marketing. It is now possible to recreate that one-on-one local shop experience from 50 years ago and understand your customers' wants and needs, to speak with them on a one-on-one basis and incorporate social media listening, response and engagement. It is a tremendous tool for customer service. David Elston, Chief Adoption Officer at Salesforce Marketing Cloud, said the single thing holding most companies back from providing social customer service is the inability to see customer service as an asset instead of a cost. Let me just go through that again. The major thing holding most companies back from providing social customer service is the inability to see customer service as an asset instead of a cost. A hell of a lot of people still see it as a cost instead of the most powerful marketing tool you can have. I think a great analogy is to view each customer interaction as a bank deposit into which you deposit or withdraw your most important investments, customer satisfaction, loyalty, and therefore your future. And the customer has the advantage of many touch points. The speed of communication makes a huge difference and they can share opinions about everything, including information about your brand or product and how you have treated them along the way. And they can do it in the blink of an eye. People are tired of call centres, tired of being put on hold, tired of having to explain who they are over and over again. With social media, you know who they are. And they can build communication with you one-on-one and providing you keep them happy, you build very loyal customers and those loyal customers become advocates. The first thing that companies have to do is to implement social customer service. And to do that, the first thing you have to do is commit to it. The community manager of Air Canada says the use of social media has enabled their customer service team to extend their online availability to 24-7 and to reach out to their international markets. Moving forward... The use of social customer service will continue to play a major role in building loyalty to the Air Canada brand. It's also important that when a customer reaches out, that you respond immediately. When the customer takes the time to let you know how they, how you could make things better and it goes ignored, they will go anywhere where they feel heard, understood and valued. And that isn't going to be with you. So the things you should pay attention to are your brand, monitoring what is happening in your industry and monitoring all the comments about your competitors. This can provide tremendous market intelligence, stuff that you very difficult to find out with a wide, without a widespread survey in the past. You can do immediately by having your entire organization involved in social media customer service. So don't forget, 
This program is all about you, the entrepreneur or the small business person that's listening to this show, looking for tips on how to help their business and make you more successful. It is bloody competitive out there. Business is war. You win or the competitors win. Helping you win is what we are here for. This whole show is dedicated to assisting entrepreneurs. So if you have a question, please don't hesitate to ail, ail? Please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we will answer it on air or email you directly. So you're listening to the number one radio show in the world for entrepreneurs, the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. And we'll be back in just a moment with one of the pioneers of digital media and entertainment. This is a great interview. You don't want to miss it. Scott Ross led George Lucas' vast entertainment empire, including Industrial Light and Magic. And under his leadership, they won 15 Academy Awards for visual effects. Then he formed Digital Domain with James Cameron and Stan Winston and won Academy Awards for Titanic, What Dreams May Come, and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Scott is a legend in special effects. He's one hell of a nice guy, lives in Venice, California. And I'll be back in just a moment with my interview with Scott. This is Bob Pritchard. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is the part of the show where we talk to extraordinary people, people who have enjoyed enormous success and have made a real difference. There's some amazingly talented people in this world, and I love to speak with them and interview them because they've so much, they've got so much that they can teach all of us. My aim in these interviews is to try and find out what makes them tick, what are their characteristics that 
make them successful while a lot of us work hard and still struggle. What we can learn and, you know, where they think their industry is going to go. Now, my guest today has been one of the most notable pioneers in digital media and entertainment. Scott Ross has had a stellar career. I mean, it's an amazing career. Along with James Cameron and Stan Winston, he founded Digital Domain, one of the largest digital production studios in the motion picture and advertising industry. Digital Domain scored his first Academy Award with a little thing called Titanic. This was followed by a second Oscar for What Dreams May Come and then a third for the sensational Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And this is only the tip of the iceberg. There's a raft of amazing imagery in a host of hit Hollywood movies. Now, my mum used to say that you, you're judged by the company you keep. Well, how about these? Scott's worked with Spielberg, Cameron, Howard, Scorsese, Coppola, the Coen brothers, Peter Jackson, and more. Now, that, if you've got to count people among your friends, they're not a bad bunch to start counting with. But before this, Scott led George Lucas' vast entertainment empire running ILM, Skywalker Sound, Lucasfilm Commercial Production, and Droidworks. Under his leadership at ILM, they collected 15 Academy Awards for Best Special Effects. He also launched the major feature film Secondhand Lions, which achieved both critical and box office success. Scott's a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the Oscars, and also the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, the Emmys. And I have to say, for a guy's worked in over a hundred of the world's largest special effects films, he's a good guy and very unassuming. He seems to intimidate a few people, but I found him to be a pretty good bloke. Hi, Scott. Great to catch up with the other day. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Thanks, Bob. Good morning. How are you? Mate, I'm really good. I was reading this morning that um, estimates suggest that Iron Man 3 has already racked up about $600 million in its first week or so of release, and it's a movie that's based solely on special effects, every single scene. Yet some 40 or so visual effects companies have gone bankrupt in the last few years. You'd think that they'd all be booming. So what's happened? Well, it's an interesting phenomenon, and it's been something that's been happening over the last 25, 30 years that I've been in the business, which is, um, you know, I, I uh, it's, a, it's an interesting analogy that I, I try to use. I, I consider the visual effects industry sort of like the uh, airline industry, which there's an incredible amount of infrastructure that has been built. You have planes on the ground, planes in the air. You have mechanics all over the world. You have flight attendants and pilots. And so a huge infrastructure, you know, for example, at Industrial Light Magic at any given time, there could be 700 to 1,000 employees, similarly at Digital Domain. Yeah. So with all of that overhead and with all of that stuff that one needs to be able to, you know, create those images, um, the scary part is when your planes are on the ground. So, you know, from, a, from an air, airline perspective, as we're making this analogy, the fellow who's running the airline thinks to himself, well, if I can get the planes up in the air, and I know that for me to break even, I have to get uh, um, $100 a seat, and I have to fill the plane by 80%, yeah. um, it's a lot less losing, what he will lose less money if he gets $60 a seat and fills the plane 
at 50%, but still has the plane take off, right. as opposed to saying, okay, everybody, it's $100 a seat, your planes are on the ground, and they're not flying. So, in many ways, the visual effects industry leaders and management, partly due to the fact that there are only six clients, right, yeah. um, undercut themselves yeah. and continue to drive prices down. Well, there's actually more than six clients, isn't there? Because almost every movie today depends on <laughs> special effects. So they're, they're actually, um, in a lot of ways, the clients, aren't they? Uh, yeah, but, but, it, but Bob, really, it, it, you know, if you think about it, there are really only six clients. And the six clients are Warner Brothers, yeah. Disney, Paramount, Universal. You know, those are the clients. Yeah. So, yes, the, the directors come and they go. And the producers come and they go, but at the end of the day, the check that you get says Universal Pictures on it. Yeah, yeah. Now, surely when the studios and the theatergoers get their first look at a um, an Iron Man or a Life of Pi, surely they go, wow, thank God for special effects, it's keeping our industry alive. Do, do people think that or they just take it for granted or is it just totally price-driven? Well, from the from the perspective, I think of the consumer. The consumer no longer goes to a movie because it stars Tom Cruise yeah. or it stars Tom Hanks. And there are a handful of directors that that audiences will flock to to see. But generally speaking, you know, you don't really know who the director is either. And so, what's the calling card for movies nowadays? The calling cards are the reels. The the teasers, the trailers that yeah. play on the internet and play on television, and it's the imagery that does it, right? So from right. the consumer perspective, it's the visual effects that bring in the people to see the movies and put the butts in the seats. From the movie um, executive, from the studio perspective, they're fully aware of that. You know, it's been a long time coming, and the transition has happened. 49 of the top 50 box office movies of all time are visual effects or computer-generated animation vehicles. So wow. it, it, it's clear to everyone, the consumer and the studio alike, that if you're going to have a hit movie, particularly an international hit movie, it better be chock full of digital effects. Right. Um, so that being said, you would think once again, oh, Done. <laughs> Why aren't these companies making any money? And the reason is partly due to the business model, which is um, these companies bid on a project on a flatbed basis. Right. So, you know, by the very nature of visual effects being imagery that, that you've never seen before, therefore imagery that's never been done before, therefore we don't really know how to do this thing, right? We're, we're inventing constantly. It becomes really difficult, if almost impossible, to come up with a flat bid, you know? Yeah, yeah. So if you look at the way that movies and television shows are produced today, you know, special, special effects are a major component even of television now. So Correct. they're one of the biggest industries in the United States, and yet they don't seem to get recognition. And wouldn't recognition from inside the industry... Um, go a long way towards um, building their positioning and therefore hopefully elevating prices to where they can make a profit. Um, you mentioned to me earlier that um, 
in his Oscar acceptance speech, Ang Lee thanked almost everybody on the planet, but didn't mention the special effects, which is 99% of his movie. Um, right. so, so why don't the people in the industry whose film is depending on brilliant special effects, why don't they give it more positioning? Well, you, you can look at it from two ways. One is the, the applicable way, which is the way it is, and then one which is the sort of paranoid, well, maybe it's a way to be able to keep them down on the farm, right? So um, let's take Ang Lee and the life of Pi, which you just mentioned. Clearly, the life of Pi um, would not have been the tour de force that it, it was, nor would it have done the, I think, close to $700 million worldwide box office that it's done. Nor would Ang Lee have gotten the Academy Award for Best Director, or Claudio Marana get the the best uh, for Best Cinematography, the Academy Award. Yeah. But we know that really the life of Pi, in many ways, was a Indian boy in a lifeboat in a swimming pool surrounded by blue screen, and yeah. everything else you saw in the movie. The meerkats, the tiger, the orangutan, the sky, the waves, the birds, the fish were all created in computer-generated imagery at Rhythm and News and, yeah. and several other companies. So why did they not? Did they do what they did? And I think the answer to that is all of the work that takes place manipulating those images and creating those images takes place in distant locations where incredible technical and incredible artistic men and women sit in darkened rooms for hours on a day and days on a week to create those images with little to no interaction yeah. with Ang Lee or the first, uh, the, the first unit team. So it's, you know, the guys in the pool, Ang is there shooting. You know, he's directing the kid. And all yeah. those pool guys, are, he knows those guys, loves those guys. But he rarely, if ever, meets the men and women located at Ribbon and Hughes who are in this dark, you know, cavernous place working diligently on their computers 15, 16 hours a day, six, seven days a week. Yeah. See, so it's, it's a race by the studios to get special effects more and more cheaply, and this puts pressure on the companies and effectively sends them out of business. I would have thought that it was in the studio's interest to support um, special effects companies. I know um, I belong to a group called Metal, as do you, and um, there's a couple of special effects guys there that um, work really hard to create new special effects to be on the cutting edge and continually come up with bigger and better and better and better special effects. Why wouldn't the studio support those people? Because that's going to be the future of their industry, surely. Well, it's not only the future of the industry, as, as international films become more important, you know, if we look at box office today, uh, 35% of total box office on tentpole movies comes from the United States, while the remaining, you know, 65 to 70% of time, uh, box office comes from international territories. And, and that's changing, that's moving more towards international as more screens are built, sure. as China comes online, et cetera. So, yeah, China's very important now, isn't it? Yeah, and it's gonna be, it's gonna surpass the U.S. in the number of screens, I believe, by the year 2020. So what's the international language? The international language is visual imagery. You know, yeah. it's not going to be driving Miss Daisy. So yeah, you're absolutely right. The future 
of uh, the immediate future of the of the feature film industry continues to be visual effects. So you would say, well, why wouldn't they want to keep those companies in business? And the answer to it is is a cultural issue. Culturally, the movie industry, the studios, and the way the movie industry works, I believe, has an attitude of, I don't believe what you're saying, you're trying to screw me. Now, you know, it's sort of the pot calling the kettle black. Right? I was just going to say, the studios are worrying about somebody screwing them. God. Well, but it's the pot calling the kettle black. I mean, if, yeah, if, one, if, if one acts always that you're ripping everybody off and trying to create deals and tax incentives and you're trying to manipulate your accounting so that you can hold on to as much of the money as you can, then one has to assume that everyone else is doing the same thing. Yeah. So now if you look at a budget on a movie, take a movie like Superman, um, you know, a movie that's uh, in excess of $200 million as an overall budget, approximately half that budget is visual effects. The number one line item on a major tentpole movie nowadays is no longer the artist, it's the visual effects component. So if you're a movie studio and you're looking and you're saying, gosh, we're spending $100 million on visual effects, from the zeitgeist, the cultural zeitgeist by which a movie studio has operated over the last 50, 60 years, they're scratching their head and they're saying, somebody's zooming somebody. Somebody's making some money over here. Yeah. And that what they don't realize is that all of that $100 million and sometimes more than that $100 million is actually being spent on the men and women that are creating those images with no participation in those films whatsoever. Wow. I guess they've, they've managed to push talent uh, fees down dramatically. As the, as the level of um, special effects increases, talent fees have gone down because talent is so much less important now. I mean, that, the cast of um, um, Iron Man, for example, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a bloody good cast with, with Downey and um, um, Kingsley and... All, I can't remember who else is in it, but the Paltrow. But it's a it's a bloody good cast. But they're nowhere near as important. Most of the time, he's running around with a mask on his head. Um, the talent's nowhere near as important today, is it? What's going to happen to top line talent? Well, you know, the, the talent, in, in my opinion, the talent is uh, the star talent is nowhere near as important. Though I got to tell you, I think Robert Downey Jr. is the reason, is one of the main reasons why Iron Man for the Iron Man franchise is what it is. I mean, Iron Man 1, has the casting been different? I'm not sure anyone else in the, in the stellar universe of stars could have actually pulled that role off like Downey did. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably the reason, I, I don't have the exact numbers on his deal, but it's been touted that his deal is one of the richest deals around um, for, for the sequels. So, right. you know, Robert Downey is not hurting, but Robert Downey deservedly, in many ways, um, deservedly created, helped create that franchise, and therefore, you know, is getting, paid, is getting compensated very well. Now, the interesting thing about it is that Robert Downey has a manager, and Robert Downey has an agent, right? right. Yep. And so it's not that it's not that Robert's out there sort of slogging it out with the studios. He has he has people, as we say in Hollywood, that are doing that. <laughs> yeah. Now, unfortunately for Industrial Light and Magic, you know, the folks yeah. that did the visual effects on the first Iron Man movie, they don't have those agents. They don't have people that are slogging it out. And so, um, 
you know, I don't know what Industrial Light Magic made on Iron Man 1, but I can, from my, from having run Industrial Light Magic back in the day and running Digital Domain, I would probably say not very much. Robert Downey did a whole lot better than Industrial Light and Magic did. So why don't, why don't these companies have people representing them? I mean, you know, the tobacco industry's got um, a whole plethora of um, um, agents running around Washington trying to twist people's arms. Why, why don't these companies have an equivalent? Well, you know, again, it gets back to a cultural issues. So most of these companies that are of size and scope were started, you know, at most 25, 30 years ago. Sure. And they were started by men, not, unfortunately not women at the time, but mostly men that were either technical people that built camera rigs or, or understood photochemical processes, or they were artists, you know, creative people yeah. that, you know, uh, and so there wasn't really a business component to these businesses, you know, it, and, and the attitude sort of was, and I think the great George Lucas line from the Star Wars day was, uh, if we give them enough pizza and beer, they'll do anything. You know, so it was that sensibility. That was, uh, again, the cultural um, platform by what, with the, which this industry was, was built. And, you know, you have, for all intents and purposes, all of these fanboys. They're like, golly, I'm working on Star Wars. I'll do it for free. Yeah. And, um, and that's what's happened. So the business component of the industry, the third leg of the stool, as it were, was not there. And, uh, you know, people were doing it for fun, and people were doing it for credit. And you can only do that for so long. It's one thing when, you know, you're working with, with glue and sticks and paint, as yeah. we were in the mid-1980s. But now we're working on servers and, and, and broadband and cloud computing and software that needs to be written. It, it's, a, it's an industry, and it's big. Yeah. So it's really the um, visual effects studio's own fault they're going broke. Well, yeah, in a lot of ways, it's really, you know, it's sort of when the client says jump and you say how high and I'll continue to jump, at some point you have to stand up for yourself and say, no, you do not own my software that we built for this show. This is not your software because you're not paying me for it. Yeah. So, no, you do not own the pipeline, the processes, the computers. We're providing a service for you. And, by the way, the service that we're providing you is extraordinary and worth hundreds of millions of dollars in box office. And so we should benefit, just like the actor benefits. Yeah. I guess, I guess they're used to it. I, I was going through a... Um, a writer's contract for, for a studio um, the other day, and it's you know 50 pages of the most complicated stuff you could ever read in your life, and it effectively takes away every right that everybody has. So since they've been able to do that with writers and no doubt with everyone else, I guess it's just a natural extension to take it through to visual effects. Well, it's worse on the visual effects side, but at least the writers have the Writers Guild, and oftentimes, you know, writers have agents. So there are at least people that are their foils that, that are out there working, but the visual effects industry has none of that, right? So the uh, visual effects industry is much more naked and, 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 and in much, in not as good a position. Plus, the numbers are so much higher, you know, um, 
I mean, at this point, you look at Pirates of the Caribbean, I, I think Johnny Depp is being paid in excess of $20 million to be in the film. Well, the, the visual effects dwarf that, right? Yeah. So, you know, the, uh, of course, where, where, where does one go? One goes to the, to the highest number and, and starts to rip that apart because you think that's where the most fat is. Well, but it's not. Yeah, okay. So, Scott... Where's the movie industry going, say, the next 10 years? The old studio system, is that broken down and the, the studio, there's going to be a lot more independence and the studios are going to be essentially just distribution centres? Do you see that happening? Well, I don't even see the studios as being distribution centres. I mean, today, the studios are distribution centres and financiers. Yeah. The studios are generally not creative, right? They're, no, you, you know, you, yeah. a lot of people think of the studios as they make movies. Uh, the studios generally, I mean, there's some, but the studios generally finance and distribute movies. That's, yeah, right. that's what they do, yep. right? So um, the distribution channels are changing. And so nowadays, you know, we, we're still going to the cinema and looking at the silver screen and whether it's projected on film, though hardly any at all, yeah. and now projected digitally, there's still a lot of people that continue to go to the cinema. And, and we've seen, frankly, you know, I mean, back in the day, um, well, the Walt Disney Company was producing somewhere around 20 movies a year. I think the Walt Disney Company is producing about five movies a year now. Right. So we're seeing tentpole movies still play in, um, in cinemas. But, you know, uh, I'm an old guy. My, my son, son and my daughters, they're watching their movies. They're, they're, they're accessing their content on smartphones, on pads, on, on smart televisions. Their tip to the movies doesn't make as much sense to them. It's like, wait, you want me to be there at 2.15 for showtime? Well, I want to watch my movie when I want to watch it. And they have the opportunity to do that. So uh, different, different, a totally different experience. That's that's another question. Do you think that the um, um, tablet, video, uh, television screens ever going to replace the big screen? I mean, the, the, you don't have the atmosphere. You don't have. It, it's a whole different experience, isn't it? Well, you know, history has said that uh, that nothing ever really gets replaced. You know, um, I went and I saw Shakespeare. You know, uh, at the at the you know, yeah. one will still go to the theater. One still, I still listen to radio. Um, you know, la 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 la. But yeah. will that market dwindle? Yes, I think the cinema experience will become, at least in, for the rest of my lifetime, um, an experience that is really special only for big tentpole movies. And um, and maybe for dinner theaters and simulated ride ride experiences, but you know at some point um, cinema becomes a lot less critical, and uh, and big screens in people's homes and or smart devices you know take 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 the place of what we used to do to go for a music a movie experience. Okay, last question. Movies are depending more and more and more on you know cutting in edge technologies that's mainly developed by nerds in their 20s. So is the movie industry of the future going to be driven by a management team that looks like the one at Facebook? Uh, I'm not all that familiar with the management team at Facebook. You know, I, I read everything that I can about Zuckerberg because I'm sort of fascinated by this sort of, um, you know, <laughs> extraordinary. Just 
he, he's a real, he's a real interesting person. Let's just they, put it that way. They just hit 1.11 billion yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's amazing. It's um, you know, listen, I think the future of displays will change. We're seeing, uh, we're seeing the likes of a company like Google come in with Google Glass. Very yeah. shortly thereafter, I think we will see uh, advances in, in heads-up displays that you wear. Uh, I can see altered realities where, you know, you could be looking through glasses and, and look at your living room and all of a sudden uh, a monster breaks through the wall and, uh, you know, you're experiencing those kinds of experiences. And, and chances are most of that will be curated by young people and, and the technical achievements and what can be will come from young people. I mean, young people have always driven new technologies, whether it was, you know, Steve Jobs in, in sure. our era. Sure. It's always those people because they don't see what is, they see what could be. Yeah, I agree. Scott, well, thank you very much for joining me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. I really do appreciate it. Remember, My pleasure, Bob. Remember, the Bob Pritchard Radio Show is a place for interviews with the leaders and shakers in American business, entertainment, and sports. Scott, I look forward to catching up with you again in the near future. And I'll be back with more Bob Pritchard Radio Show right after this short break. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible bob pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight talking troubleshooter for fortune 500 companies and smes across the world whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore. Or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard straight-talking, no-bullshit business show. We're coming to you this week from my hometown of Los Angeles. Now, this is the segment of the show where we bring you emails from our listeners all around the world. And it's really interesting that no matter where in the world you are, when I, when I speak to audiences around the world, I get the same questions. Question time is the same. You can be in Moscow and people will ask you exactly the same questions as they ask you in Kansas or in Sydney or in Tokyo. Because every business 
has the same set of issues, the same set of problems, same set of challenges, and needs to do the same things to be successful. So the great thing about this segment of the show is that um, irrespective of where you are in the world, you will um, get advice that can help you to um, be more successful. So whether you get it from my uh, guests or from me, then uh, it doesn't really matter as long as it helps you. Now, my first email today is from Michelle Kilpatrick of Hoboken, New Jersey. Hoboken, that's where my publisher is. Wiley's, good publisher. Michelle writes, Dear Bob, thank you for a great show. I love it. I listen every week and I wouldn't miss it. Well, thank you. That's very nice. Now, you may not believe this, but I bought one of your first books, Complex Marketing Made Simple. I bought it used (laughs) on Amazon. It is really good and really simple, and I've learned a lot about the basics of marketing. But my question is about adding value for my clients. I know that adding value is a great incentive to build loyalty from your customers and also as an incentive to sell more product. What are the things that I should know in order to build a strong added value policy for my business? Well, Michelle, thank you very much for your email. I'm glad that you enjoyed Complex. That was my first book. It must be 15 years ago now since it was released, but it was used at a number of universities for quite a while, and it was a great seller for me, and uh, I'm glad that there are still some copies around. I'm just looking at um, some on my bookshelf. I think they're the last remaining copies. It was published, uh, reprinted about five times, so I've got... Um, I've got about seven or eight here on the shelf, and uh, they're all a little bit different. So that each one of them, each time it was reprinted, the covers were a little different. So um, I'm glad you got a copy anyway. That's the most important thing, but it was a good book. With regard to your question, there are several different levels of added value. Um, the first one is just providing basic customer service that's the very least you can provide you know it's having a good product and good service that's a very basic that anybody will accept the second is the expected level of customer service so people not only expect a good product and good service but they want more they want um an explanation of benefits an explanation of how the thing works you know that extra little bit. Now that's an expected level of customer service. The third level is the customer's minimum desire, really. It's the the least they really want. This is where you'd give people advice on care, maintenance, additional opportunities, and things like that. But the only level of customer service that counts is the unexpected level of customer service. This is where you really go the extra mile, where you knock their socks off, where you provide exceptional service and adding added value. And people walk out going, wow, that was fantastic. And there are lots of areas of the business where you can add value. You know, some people think that it's only when you sell somebody something that you give it to them or whatever, but there's a whole lot of areas. The first one, for example, is your environment. 
you know, the environment, if you've got a store, it could include your parking. It could be the appearance of your, your premises, the way you merchandise the premises, the, the presentation of the things that you have. Another way is through sensory elements. Now, this would include the ambiance, the atmosphere, music, even visual movement. I've told you on the, on the show about um, the marketing, when we had the full marketing company down in Malibu, um, we had the chocolate wheel in the foyer and people used to come in and spin the chocolate wheel and it became a huge hit. People used to love coming in and spinning the chocolate wheel. That was just adding value. They could win prizes, but it also added a wow and some fun and um, it really attracts customers. The third way is to make it easier for your customers. Making your products and your information easier to locate. Um, great signage in store. Having things logically placed. Um, you know, it, all of those things count. Information's another way to improve your customer service. Simply by making sure that the information's available when they require it. Now, there's still some other things. For example, um, your delivery system and the way you present things when you deliver them and the way you present the drivers when they, when they arrive. Another way is, um, let me think, making, people, making it easier for people to deal with you when financially. You can do this by having a risk reversal and customer-friendly paperwork, and you must also ensure that your after-sale follow-up and service is really excellent. Michelle, you should sit down with your team and look at each of these elements and determine what you can do in each of these touch points to make it a knock your socks off. Wow, that was great. By doing this, you'll develop very loyal customers and get great word of mouth. Michelle, I hope that answers your question, as we do for everyone whose email is read on air. Tomorrow, we will send you a copy of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blitz Your Competition, and that's my latest best-selling book, and you've already got Complex, which was my first bestseller and one I'm really proud of. My second email today comes from Jim Ross from Santa Ana in California. Not far from me, Jim writes, Dear Bob, my question's a simple one. I'm creating a print ad for local publication and I was wondering if you could tell me what elements I need to include in the ad. Well, Jim, thanks for your question. The reason that most print ads don't work is because the people who create them don't include the right elements. And actually a few people have contacted me over the last few weeks and and have said that we've done so much work and we've discussed so much about um, social media and um, mobile that um, the old traditional media and advertising has been ignored. So next week I'm going to fix that. I'm going to do a a segment on um, how to use traditional media effectively. Now, the most important element in any ad is the headline. 
the headline must grab the attention of the reader. Reader. The second most important element is the consumer purchasing benefit. You've heard me talk about this a lot of times. This is the one powerful line that differentiates your business from all your competitors, such as 30 minutes or it's free from Domino's. That is a great consumer purchasing benefit. The third most important element is a graphic or a photograph that conveys precisely what the benefit is to the customer. So not just a photo of anything, it's got to be something that relates back to the benefit to the customer. So the customer looks at the graphic and goes, okay, I get it. Remember, a picture paints a thousand words. The fourth element that must be prominent in any advertisement is the inclusion of a minimum of two and a maximum of three strong emotional benefits of using your product or service. They've got to be emotional benefits, um, not just features. A risk reversal will increase your chance of closing a sale by in excess of 60%, and so your risk reversal should also be prominently featured. An added value benefit will also add to that and increase the chance of closing a sale significantly, so including added value is also a major benefit to both your reader and to you obtaining a sale. You must tell the reader precisely what you want them to do. That could be call now, come into the store before 5pm today, because if you don't tell them what to do, they won't do anything. You need to say something that inspires them to act. And finally, you must include contact details, address, phone number and email address. Jim, I hope that's a help to you. If you include all include all of these elements in your print advertising, which also includes flyers and postcards, etc., you'll notice a dramatic increase in the effectiveness of your sales. So, Jim, tomorrow we'll send you out a copy of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets. I'm sure it'll be a big help with your business. Send in your questions, emails, and email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Google+. Thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit Business Radio Show for Entrepreneurs. And remember, if you're serious about being successful, this is the place to come every week at exactly the same time. So to our listeners all over the world, this is Bob Pritchard, and I hope you have a fantastic week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.